think I'm just a little taller than Rebecca, so. <laughs> welcome in, welcome in. Um, I don't have a lot for you this morning, but if you didn't know, Halloween is this month. And so, yeah, I hear little woos, okay. Um, but on Halloween, uh, your kids are welcome to come dressed up in their costumes. Um, so that's kind of exciting. We'll get to see everybody kind of dressed up, which is really cool. Oh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see on Halloween, right? We'll see on Halloween. <laughs> um, and then the other announcement that I have for you guys is your communication cards, um, prayer requests, um, things to communicate, like, um, stuff that you want to be involved in or questions. Um, we just want you to fill out that communication card, um, at brookviewchurch.com. Um, and that's all I have for you. So welcome in and. Jason, come on up. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're gonna go to a drive-through right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts in drive-through windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. So we're just gonna take our stuff, and we're gonna pay for it. We'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them, sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes. It's the nature of it. How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track today? Sorry? Gospel track today to save you from your sins? Oh, yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry? Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah? The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Like a gospel track today to save you from your sins? How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track? No one's good, that's the problem. so good you guys Jen actually looked through I, I she looked through like hours and hours and hours of footage to put all that together and it was mostly all in one day and I came down and saw her at the end of the day and her eyes were glazed over and she was depressed and so we went out for drinks you know <laughs> so so last week 
Starbucks, yeah, Starbucks. That's, that's where all the sinners go. Oh, man. So last week we started this series, uh, and the main idea is simply, what might it look like for us to help our generation to know Jesus? What would it look like for us to share the gospel, to engage people that aren't following Jesus and invite them to love and follow him? And uh, before we can really make our way into any of the, the how-tos, we, we need to step back and we need to pause and simply ask, like, we got to start with something more basic, which is, what is the gospel? Because whatever it is may dictate kind of how we share it. I mean, what is the good news that Jesus came to bring us? This is falling off my ear. i got to adjust it. Oh, much better. So last week, we dove into that question. And step one was to look really at the gospel that Jesus himself preached. Because if we don't start with the gospel Jesus preached, we can easily end up with a gospel Jesus did not preach. Which I would argue is exactly where we are in much of the American churches. So we began with Mark's summary of the gospel that Jesus preached. It's like a two-verse, really one-verse summary in Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 14. After John was put in prison, Mark writes, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So Jesus is going all around Galilee preaching. And here's Mark's summary of the, the messages that Jesus was giving everywhere he went. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That is the gospel according to Jesus, at least according to Mark, according to Jesus. And as we saw last week, it's actually very different from the gospel versions that many of us have been taught. So step two this morning is to like run a compare and contrast between the gospel Jesus preached and some of the most popular summaries of the gospel in the American churches and in in our culture. In, in, In our conceptions, if our conceptions of the gospel do not align with the gospel of Jesus, or if they're limited or deficient or lacking, then we're going to be leading ourselves and others into a spirituality that is limited, deficient, and lacking. And it's my conviction that much of what American Christians call, quote, the gospel, is not necessarily wrong or heretical, it's just not the gospel of Jesus. Here's N.T. Wright, one of the best living theologians in the world. He says, I am perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it's what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are the things that people ought to say to preach about and believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. So we need to measure our preaching of the gospel against what Jesus preached. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate teacher and the litmus test for the gospel. But when we get into scripture, and here's the thing, when we get into scripture, we read the Bible, we actually open up and read it, and we read what Jesus actually said, we can be a bit surprised in how Jesus went about sharing the gospel. Uh, Let me illustrate by just kind of asking you something. I want you to imagine that a good friend or a family member or a coworker or a neighbor, somebody that you know you have a relationship with that doesn't follow Jesus comes up to you and in all sincerity, I mean, they are wide open, they're sincere, and they ask, what must I do to get eternal life? 
How would you answer that? Or even more, how have you been trained to answer that for those of you that have been trained in one way or another? I mean, like, when you think about it, like, this is the million-dollar question, right? Like, you talk about an open door, so your friend or coworker or brother or dad or grandson asks, what must I do to get eternal life? How do you answer that? Well, in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus, it turns out, gets asked that very question. And I want to read his response because I think it turns out to be very different from what most of us have been taught we should say. So here we go. Matthew 19, starting with verse 16. Very famous story. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, and I imagine Peter going, Um, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This man literally asks, what must I do to get eternal life? And for those of us who long to share the gospel, like this is the dream question. We dream of a day where our friend or our coworker or Aunt Tilly, right, will ask, Jason, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let me tell you, Aunt Tilly, right, or whatever. And based on my church experience and, it, and, and, and maybe yours, if it was anything like mine, I know what Jesus is supposed to say here. Jesus is supposed to say something like, do? You don't need to do anything. That's religion. That's man earning his way to God. That's works-based righteousness. That's not the gospel. I'm about to go do all of it for you on the cross. All you need to do is believe. Does Jesus say that? No. He tells the man to keep the Ten Commandments. 
Wait, what? All these I have kept, the man says in verse 20. What do I still lack? Notice, Jesus doesn't disagree that this man has kept the commandments. He doesn't try to convince him, okay? He does not try to convince him that he's a terrible person. He doesn't begin the conversation with that. Apparently, this guy is highly moral, but both the man and Jesus are aware that there's something more than just obeying the commandments. That whatever salvation is, it's not less than morality, but it's a lot more than morality. Then Jesus tells him to actively do something, to sell all his possessions and come and follow Jesus. Guys, that is not what Jesus is supposed to say. Like, here's the thing. You have to be so careful around Jesus because he'll come along and just mess up all your great theology. Now, here's a little backstory to sort of make sense of Jesus' response. This man, contrary to popular opinion, is not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? For sure, as a first century Jew, he'd have some concept of life after death and maybe even a place called the heavens with the living God. But the first century Jews were waiting on pins and needles for the arrival of what? The Messiah. This king sent from God himself that would come and and usher in the kingdom of God, like the reign of God, not only over Israel, but over the whole world, not only over Jews, but but like a Jews plus Gentile family, this new thing, a whole new order of love and peace and justice. This man is, is coming to Jesus now because he suspects for some reason that Jesus may be the Messiah. And so he's, what he's wanting to know is, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm a part of that kingdom with you, Jesus? Or in our language, that I'm on the right side of history, both now and forevermore. Now, part of the confusion is that the phrase eternal life, like the Greek phrase that gets translated eternal life, is notoriously difficult to translate into English. For most of us, we, we hear that phrase, right, eternal life, and we just think, well, life without end. And it's not that it, it doesn't really mean that. It's just that it, it means a lot more than that. A, a growing number of scholars are now arguing that a much better translation is the life of the age to come. So the word eternal doesn't just describe the length, but it also describes the type of life a person has in Christ. So get this, the the one time that eternal life is actually defined for us in the New Testament, it's defined by Jesus himself. So I don't know, maybe it's just me. I'm thinking we should pay very close attention. And in John 17, 3, Jesus gives us his definition. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So according to Jesus, eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Not knowing like about God the way that I know about like Japan or something because I've like read about it but never been there. But knowing God the way that I know my wife or knowing God the way that I know my best friend or knowing God the way that I know one of my children to like authentically experience relational intimacy with God. John Ortberg writes, To know God is to live in a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. And notice that in the story we just read, eternal life and the kingdom of heaven 
and the kingdom of God and salvation are all used interchangeably. Jesus shifts back and forth from one term to another interchangeably. And if you read through the New Testament, different authors use different language, like they have different themes when they're writing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the main language is the kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and they mean the same thing. Yet in the Gospel of John and and in the rest of the New Testament, the kingdom theme is still present, and it's quite obvious, but they actually use very different language to refer to it. So in the Gospel of John, the main language or idea is eternal life. In the writings of Paul, um, the way of describing it shifts more to like the concept of salvation. But all the authors are describing the same thing. Those words and ideas are all used interchangeably, meaning that those are not four different distinct messages. They're four different ways of saying the same thing. So kingdom, salvation, eternal life, as as Tim Keller puts it, one gospel, many forms. But even considering a bit of room to adapt the, the message to a particular context, the response of Jesus to the rich young ruler, it sounds kind of odd. Like, wait, like that's really not the right answer, is it, Jesus? I mean, based on the gospel I was taught, it doesn't sound right at all. So Could it be that Jesus' view of the gospel and with it salvation and eternal life itself is different than the one that a lot of us grew up with? That is a very leading question and it's rhetorical, but as you can imagine, I would argue, yes. Yes, it is. So for the rest of our time today, I want to explore the four most common gospels, like the four most prominent versions of the gospel in America, in American churches, and among American followers of Jesus. And I want us to see what's beautiful and right about them, because there are a lot of good things about them, and yet, at the same time, they are all lacking in some way. And, and in doing this, I just want to say, like right from the outset, please, I, I want to make something like really, really, really clear. I am not coming at this from a place of like, superiority or or judgment like all these people have it wrong but we at Brookview and me as Pastor Jason I have it right Um, I'm I'm learning all the time I'm learning all the time and I have so far to go and I am very fallible and I I am in need of being taught so my heart is not one of superiority or or judgment at all like at all my heart in, in in having this conversation with you guys is pastoral I I want you to flourish as you learn how to walk with Jesus. I want you to be able to experience all that God has for you. I I want you to allow him to transform your heart and your life to the fullest. I, I want us to become people who look more and more and more like Jesus. I want us to be filled with things like compassion and wisdom I want us to be strong and courageous and discerning. I want us to become so solid in our faith that the cultural winds don't blow us all over the place. I I want us to become like people of maturity. And I want you to experience, like actually experience the presence of God, to let his spirit work in you and and bring, bring out all kinds of fruit in your life. 
and then for you to do what Jesus would do if he was living your life in your place, for you to go out and make your contribution as a follower of Jesus to our culture and to our world and to your family and to your friends and to the people you work with everywhere you go. And it's my conviction that all four of the Gospels that we're going to look at, because they are incomplete in one way or another, they will, if this is what we think is the Gospel, they will limit our experience of Jesus. So my goal isn't to criticize or to label or to judge anyone. It's simply to invite you and call you to wholeheartedly follow Jesus so that you can experience all that God intends for you. Okay, here we go. We're going to take a run through what, we're, what I'm calling the four American Gospels. So we have the John 3.16 Gospel, the Reformed Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, and the social gospel. All right, let's start with the John 3.16 gospel. Here, here's, here it is like at a popular level. Here's a summary of it. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. Now this gospel is usually followed by some version of like the sinner's prayer or a call to raise your hand, or like at the end of the sermon, or to come forward. And this version of the gospel rose to prominence uh, shortly after World War II. And it was an attempt to simplify the gospel and to make it accessible, to make it repeatable and understandable and shareable. And in defense of the heart behind it, it was a product of a generation that far more than our own took Jesus' call to preach the gospel very, very seriously. And there are some things that it does really well. Like it, it, it's called to personal conversion is powerful and it's strong. Um, I, I don't know about you. I come out of the, the tr- Christian tradition that, that formed me just sort of takes that for granted. But some of you, you know, you were like baptized as infants or you grew up Catholic or you grew up in like some sort of mainline denomination where there's often no moment of commitment. There's no like moment where you make a decision to say yes to Jesus. Well, the, 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 the gospel calls people, this gospel calls people to like make a decision to choose. And of course, there are some issues with this gospel. Most notably, it's simply nothing close to the gospel that Jesus himself preached. It's not that it's wrong per se, It's just like super incomplete. Salvation for Jesus isn't just about getting you into heaven. It's also about getting heaven into you. It's not just about what happens when we die, but what happens like if we live. It's not just about going up there. It's about heaven coming down here. It's not just about a transaction, but also about this inner, this transformation. Here's John Orberg again on this. He says, in in this way of thinking about salvation, the the goal is to get from down here to up there, about how to know for sure that you're heading to the good place. It usually involves praying a very specific prayer, believing a set of doctrines about God and other things that make someone a, quote, Christian. Ironically, it does not necessarily involve a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. And that's the problem. That's the main issue. 
If this is the gospel, and this is, this is the whole gospel, this is all there is to it, there is no concrete call to discipleship. Discipleship is, is something that happens after you get saved, and it is often seen as like an optional add-on for those who happen to be into it. Rather than being like the pathway into salvation. This kind of gospel can, can quickly become the pursuit of like minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. When people who, who think of John 3.16 as the entire gospel ask, is so-and-so saved? What they often mean is, do they meet the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven after they die? I just, but I just want to ask, is salvation something that can even be experienced through the pursuit of minimal entrance requirements? Or is salvation more like the scriptural metaphor of marriage? Okay, like, imagine if I said to my wife, and I don't just mean a generic, I mean my wife, Jen Huguenin. Think of Jen Huguenin. Okay, if I said to Jen Huguenin, okay, Jen, what are the minimal requirements you need from me to stay legally married to you? How do you think that would go? I mean, those of you that, that know Jen know that if I said something that stupid, it really would not go well. And that's an understatement. But, but more than not going well, more than the fact that it would be uh, rightfully upsetting and hurtful and stupid, here's the thing. If I were to ask that question and even think along those terms, I'd be missing the entire point of what marriage even is. Yes, marriage is a legal status. It is a legal status. That's part of it. But that does not, by any means, encompass all that marriage is. Marriage is a relational covenant intended to contain the deepest union. And in the same way, salvation involves a change of status, yes, but salvation is way, way, way more than just a change of status. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, a marriage comprised only of legal status, like it's a marriage, I guess, but it's missing the point. Okay, let's move to the second one, the Reformed Gospel. And by the way, that, that label itself is not, it's not mine. It's used by many like Reformed or Calvinist preachers and denominations and like church planting organizations, and they, they literally use the label Reformed to describe themselves. It's their label for themselves. Now, at a popular level, the Reformed gospel sounds something like this. God is a perfect, holy, just God of both love and wrath. You are morally guilty before him. God's demands must be kept. You cannot possibly do it. But Jesus did it for you on the cross. Now, this view is, is primarily concerned about a transaction that takes place. It's sort of another transactional sort of thing. And the theological word that best encapsulates this, this is the word justification. The idea is that Jesus has earned merit on our behalf through living a sinless, perfect life that we never could. And in the heavenly courtroom of a holy, just God, he has imputed, okay, that's the word, imputed, that merit, the merit of Jesus, somehow over onto you and to me. Jesus has died in your place 
so that now you are declared righteous, which just means like morally right or free from the guilt of sin. So you are declared righteous in God's eyes by sheer grace, not by any works, and that's a huge thing to stress with this gospel, not by any works, not by anything that you have done, just because of the unearned, unmerited favor of God. So once you trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, you are justified, meaning it is just as if you never sinned at all, as the saying goes. Now here's John Piper, one of the most vocal advocates for this view being the gospel. He says, I am thrilled to call justification the heart of the gospel. Or as Albert Muller Jr., the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary puts it, justification by faith alone is not one doctrine among others. It is not merely one way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. Now, to clarify, justification is absolutely a biblical concept. It absolutely is. But it's not used nearly as often as some people like to think. Like in all four Gospels, it is used only one time by Jesus. In a beautiful story in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus, Jesus mentions justification. It's used more by Paul but still, even with Paul, only some of the time. It's only developed in depth in two of his letters, okay, in Romans and in Galatians. Other than that, it's used briefly in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians, and then not at all in his other nine or ten letters, not at all. And it's never used once by John or Peter or James or any of the other New Testament authors, which, you guys, is pretty strange if it is, quote, the gospel, There's no denying that justification, the transaction that comes through the cross, is a really big deal, and it should not be minimized. But the question we should ask is, is that like the whole gospel? Here's Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar from a very conservative seminary. He writes, most gospel presentations I hear focus often exclusively on the cross. The gospel is set forth primarily, if not exclusively, as a transaction to be experienced in a moment of time. To believe or to exercise faith is to trigger the transaction and fulfill the gospel. Now what makes this tricky is that there is a transaction that is a part of the gospel and that allows us to experience God's good news. Hey, there is a transaction. However, he says, there is more to the gospel. The great danger with like a, a transactional gospel is that it, it really serves to stunt our discipleship because following Jesus is actually something you, you have to actively do. And if you're constantly told that it's, it's never about what you do, it's only ever about what God has done for you, then you can end up with a very, very passive version of faith. The emphasis on the, on the transaction of the cross is not wrong at all, but, it, but if it isn't joined with Jesus' call to follow him and then be transformed, it becomes woefully incomplete and it, and it, and it can be a barrier to growth. You know, a lot has been said in the last 10, 20 years, for those of you that have been running in Christian circles for a while, there's been a whole lot that has been said and debated and discussed about the phenomenon of 
consumer Christianity in the United States, right? All those consumer Christians. We're always bagging on the consumer Christians. But I just want to say, maybe there's a connection to the way the gospel has been preached. I mean, if the gospel is, here's the gospel, put up your hand for a quick ticket to heaven, or the gospel is, Jesus did it all, you don't have to do anything, then maybe the natural result is to produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples or apprentices of Jesus' way. Okay, two more real quick. Third is the prosperity gospel. And this is a fun one. I, I, I really like this one. And if I was going to go one direction or another, I, I'd go the prosperity gospel. <laughs> and here's why. Because, because for the most part, pastors and preachers of the prosperity gospel drive insanely expensive cars. <laughs> this is the pastor with the Benz out front, baby. Right? That sounds awesome. Um, and, and this one goes by many names, including health and wealth, or name it and claim it, and there are several others. But the incredibly prestigious online academic journal, Wikipedia, <laughs> defines it as a religious belief among some Protestant Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. And that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. The, the popular version of the prosperity gospel sounds like this. God loves you and is for you. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have victory. Through faith, you can claim that victory. Through faith, you, you overcome sickness, poverty, and failure. The best is yet to come. Those who preach this gospel often, as I said, make big, big money. Probably the most notorious prosperity gospel was a preacher named, anybody know where I'm going? Joel Osteen, okay. Uh, no, I'm not going to crucify everybody. Uh, a guy named uh, Benny Hinn. You guys remember Benny Hinn? Mm. Well, his nephew, Costi Hinn, wrote a memoir called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And Costi grew up working for his uncle, Benny Hinn. Um, and now he, he is a pastor in his own right and a church leader, and he, he does not embrace the prosperity gospel. But here's what he writes. Growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish. Our loyalty was enforced. And our version of the gospel was big business. Through Jesus, though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more like a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal, it was now. We lived the prosperity gospel. Now, this might surprise some of you guys coming from me, but there are aspects of the prosperity gospel movement that I think have been good and right and beautiful. And it's not the Ben's driving pastor part. <laughs> uh, first of all, it insists on a loving God who is for you. Even through hardship, he's for you. And it maintains 
faith that God can do miracles, that, that we live in an open universe, not a closed system, that God can come in and do the miraculous in your life. It has a much more holistic view of the gospel and human flourishing. Like prosperity churches have often started a, a wide array of social services. They serve neighborhoods where there's a great deal of poverty. Prosperity churches have also been on the forefront of the multi-ethnic church from their, from their inception. And, and the gospel for them isn't just about heaven one day. It's about life in the here and now, right? So there is some, some good that's in here. The main problem is simply that this is not the gospel that Jesus preached. In fact, it's literally the exact opposite of how Jesus actually lived. And it sets people up for disillusionment. I mean, the, the catchphrase for a lot of prosperity gospel circles and cultures is, the best is yet to come. And you go, okay, well, tell that to the apostles and the millions of Christian martyrs who all died after they were tortured for their faith in Jesus. It went real south for them. Like, is that because they didn't have enough faith? The best is yet to come. Really? Well, if by best you mean becoming a person of, of love as defined by Jesus, love often lived out in the midst of great suffering, and by yet, yet to come you mean uh, if not in this life, then in the life to come, then that statement, like, that's 100% true. Right? But if by best you mean health and wealth and success and material well-being, and by yet to come you mean sometime between now and when you die, that could not be farther from the gospel of Jesus. I mean, that's just an illusion. And if you buy into it, you're, you're essentially living in la-la land. The, the prosperity gospel is, is often guilty of just idolizing some of the things that are the worst parts of American culture. Just spiritualizing the materialism that's already enslaving so many. The goal is, is more to get God to do what you want than to become a person who understands how to go do what God wants. Okay, one more, last one. The social gospel, which is also known as the liberation gospel. And at a popular level, it, the thinking of it kind of goes like this. Jesus was a political revolutionary. He came to liberate the poor and marginalized from oppression. He was killed as a threat to the power structures. But he inaugurated a kingdom. There we go. He inaugurated a kingdom of peace, justice, and equality. His followers are called to stand up against abuses of power and to work to liberate those on the margins. The idea is that America, like among uh, social gospel folks in the, in the U.S., America is the latest iteration in a long line of empires, and Jesus is on the march now as he was then to stand up against those who abuse power and to liberate the oppressed, such as the poor or the immigrant or the BIPOC community or the refugee or the L LGBTQ uh, community or any other sector of our society that is experiencing oppression. In the social gospel, the church's role is essentially an activist role. The role is to call out oppression and injustice and usher in equality and justice. Now, let me, let me say what I really, really like about this gospel, because there's some beautiful stuff with this. For starters, it actually uses the language of kingdom. Like, finally, you guys, we're one for four. 
at this point. Like, okay, kingdom. And, and proponents of the social gospel see the kingdom as a present reality. It's more than just going up to heaven when you die. It also believes that the gospel must be lived right here and right now, that the gospel makes an actual difference in our modern world. It also understands, and this is interesting, it also understands that sin is not always just individual. Sometimes it is societal or institutional. Sometimes sin gets embedded into an entire culture. And so it has great courage when it sees that culture to call out racism or sexism or classism. But again, there are some problems with this gospel. For starters, if Jesus' message of the kingdom was primarily political, why was he so inclined to avoid all the major raging political debates of his own day? Now, sometimes scholars uh, label his approach to political activism, the political activism of his day as like intentional indifference. There was a lot going on that Jesus could have spoken up about or gotten his disciples out to, to picket or whatever. Well, what was Jesus' response to that stuff? Well, one example is give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Jesus didn't seem to see himself primarily as a political activist. Another issue is that the social gospel is very, very concerned about the sin out there, but it's a whole lot less concerned with the sin in here. Once again, the main problem here is that this gospel does not require discipleship to Jesus on a more holistic level. As long as I am angry and actively fighting the right bad things out there, it matters very little what's actually going on in my inner life. Discipleship is almost exclusively defined as political activism. So the danger here is just like becoming an angry activist. I have a daughter who lives in Portland, right? Like she's being evangelized into angry activism. I want to get her a beanie cap so she can look the part. <laughs> the danger is becoming like an angry activist who opposes institutional evils of all kinds out there, but experiences very little transformation in here. So those are the four most prominent gospels in American Christianity. And they have goodness and beauty in them for sure. But here's what's kind of weird about all four. You can engage in any of them without actively following Jesus. What is the gospel? Well, if you read Mark's summary, the good news is Jesus is inviting us to experience the kingdom of God both now and forevermore. So a big question then is, well, what is the gateway to that? I mean, is it, is it raising our hand at camp or in church so that we can go to heaven one day? Is it confessing that we, we don't do anything because Jesus has already done it all? That we've been justified through faith and it's done? Is it about claiming the victory that I have in Jesus through faith so that I can be healthy and wealthy and successful? Is it fighting oppression through activism? Well, isn't the gateway into the kingdom of God to simply follow Jesus? 
to learn how to be with him so we can become like him and then go into a world and do what he would do? I mean, isn't the gateway to all of this and to encountering the kingdom of God and all of that to actively apprentice under Jesus? Here's what I want us to recognize. There's a lot in these gospels that's right. There's a lot that's right. And some of them, like the whole thing is right. It's just incomplete. But what I want us to recognize, and this is the huge takeaway for today. If our understanding of the gospel does not include active apprenticeship to Jesus, it is not the gospel of Jesus. And the truth is, you you can do any of the four that we've talked about today and not actively apprentice under Jesus, which is absolutely crazy when you think about it. So as we end, last week we, we pointed out, and by we I mean I. I don't know why pastors do that. We do that. So last week, I pointed out that the original title of the Gospels was Euangelion Kata, right? Euangelion, before the the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's in Greek, there's that little, there's two little words, Euangelion Kata, Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, meaning the Gospel according to. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John, which of course I think raises a very interesting question. What is the gospel according to you? Because all of us, religious or not, like serious disciples of Jesus or nominal Christians or all of us base our lives on some kind of gospel some kind of inner creed that defines what we think the good life is all about. Something that that helps us understand what we should be doing and and what the good life is that, that determines for us salvation. The place that we put our hope for the present and the future, the place we look to fulfill our deepest desires for for human flourishing in our day and, and in our soul and in society. It could be the gospel of Jesus that you or I believe, or it could be the, like the gospel of career success, or it could be this vision of, of government, or, or that vision of government, or this identity, or that identity, or the grand dream of the political right, or the grand dream of the political left. It could be any number of things that you think will lead to a full life. So what is the gospel according to you? Who or what are you looking to for your salvation? Because the gospel you live in is the gospel you will live out. And so to close today, I just just want to say this is the gospel of Jesus. That God has come in Jesus. And he is present now and active and at work in human history and in your life through the Holy Spirit. He has and is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And to participate, Jesus says, repent and believe. And again from last week, John Mark Comer on what that entails. What does it mean to repent and believe? He summarizes, rethink everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, and what the good life you crave actually is. 
and put your trust and confidence in me, Jesus, to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life that you ache for. Guys, this is stunning when you think about it. Jesus is inviting us into the inner love of the Trinity, the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're invited to allow them to heal us, not just to transact something in heaven, but to transform us to be more like God himself from the inside out. And to begin, all we have to do is exactly what Jesus said. He said it to John, he said it to Peter and many others, and he said it to a rich young ruler one day. Come and follow me. Father in heaven. I thank you for for the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the example of Jesus. I thank you for the reality that we have so much to learn. I have so much to learn from Jesus about, about how to live, how to think, how to process, all of it. But God, I want to I experience not just like fire insurance, knowing that if I die, I, I'm going to the good place. I want to experience the life of of, of knowing you and loving you and being loved by you and walking with you and being guided by you more and more and more every single day. And God, I pray that you would help me to do that. I pray that for us as a community of followers of Jesus, that we would actually be followers of Jesus. So God, would you, would you build that into our, our church? Would you build that into the culture of what we're doing here? Would you bring us to places of maturity that we, we never even thought were possible? Would you fill us with peace and joy and wisdom and strength and courage and discernment and all of the things that you want to fill us with so that we look like Jesus more and more as we engage the world that, that we live in? God, would you, would you move powerfully in us? Would you lead us into salvation, not just on the other side of death, but right, right now? Amen.